Hello there. Welcome to the Heavy Hole. My name is Tom. My name is Big Will, a.k.a. Uncle Buck. My name is Justin, brought to you by baked clams and eggplant rollatini. Oh, and I've had boy. too much, and it hurts. Guys, you can't help, but I would just, I'm just saying help rhetorically. <laughs> help. <laughs> what? Oh. Okay, I, I just got to say one now, because that's the episode. We can't top oh. that. <laughs> that was great. Much like, much like the baked uh, crispy topping on those clams, that was gold, Justin. Uh, oh, welcome to the welcome to the Heavy Hole Podcast, and just like Justin said, we're rolling out the baked clams, we're rolling out the pasta, we're rolling out the special seafood tonight. Uh, we have death metal royalty in the building. We're going to get Terry Butler on the phone this evening, guys. I'm very excited. Yep, yeah. rolling out that that red sauce carpet for him. Uh, coming on down, <laughs> <laughs> Justin. I think you just need to allegedly eat one of these uh, Zoom cookies or whatever they're calling them nowadays and sit back on the couch, and we're going to talk death metal history. There. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, just for everyone who's listening at home, we are doing a lot of episodes a week now because we got time. So when it comes down to the old golden question, how was your week? We already said it in probably the last episode you listened to. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I watched a couple documentaries. Uh, the, the, yeah, my yeah my cat. Uh, what else? <laughs> you know, come on, you guys know what's going on. We got bigger fish to fry tonight, uh, as we already said, man. We got the seafood ready to go. Uh, Justin, get the tray ready. We're, l- yeah, let's get right. Terry Butler on the phone, okay, guys? No, no more BS. Come on, doing it. Hi, this is uh, Will from Heavy Hole Podcast. Yeah, how you doing? I'm great, man. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. No problem. Is the connection okay? Uh, sounds good to me. Is it good, Tom? Yeah, it sounds good. Terry, that's uh, my co-host, Tom. Hey, Tom. How you doing, Terry? Thanks for your time. No problem. Thank you. And we also have Justin, my other co-host here. There's three of us. Good to meet you. Thanks for coming on. Anytime. So, uh, Terry, you know, as we always say on the show, we want to be respectful of your time. Is it okay if I just jump in with the questions? Yep, go right ahead. Awesome. I I appreciate it, man. And, you know, obviously we're aware of of all your different work you've done over the years, so we got a lot of questions that we want to get into. Just for starters, um, I know that you're originally from Florida. What part of Florida are you from? Well, I was born in a town called Palatka, um, which which is like kind of northeast up near Ocala and Gainesville, I mean uh, Jacksonville, kind of up that way. But I moved to the Tampa Bay area when I was really young. Um, and I actually right now live in a place called Dover, which is pretty close to Tampa. Okay, and, and I assume that's that's where you hooked up with a lot of the, um, the seminal death metal musicians uh, that you're known to have worked with? Oh yeah, yep. I'm a, I'm a true Florida cracker. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, I grew up with most of the people here. I mean, it was all kind of centralized around the Tampa area. I mean, there was 
some stuff in Miami sprouting up and Orlando with, with death. But, I mean, a lot of it was here in Tampa, yeah. And, I mean, we all kind of grew up together. Yeah, and, um, you know, I, I, I wanted to ask you about the, the metal scene when you were growing up. But even before that, are you from um, a particularly musical family? Um, not really, actually. Um, I was exposed to some really awesome music way early on, but no one really played any instruments. My uncle, my uh, my dad's youngest brother, he was 10 years older than me, so, you know, he was playing Deep Purple, uh, Leonard Skinner, Kiss, Led Zeppelin, um, Rainbow, you know, all the cool stuff way early on. So I got exposed to that pretty early, and uh, I, you know, so definitely a child of the '70s. But as far as someone playing an instrument in my family, nope, <laughs> I'm the first. And uh, is it correct? I know from some of the research I did in other interviews that you were a big Kiss fan uh, as a teenager, right? Would you say that that's where? Is that correct? And would you say that that's where the the, the guitar uh, fascination started? Pretty much. I mean, I remember being you know 11 or 12 years old and uh my friend had a strobe light and we would put on a kiss record turn the light off in his room and turn on the strobe light and jump up and down on the bed with tennis rackets pretending like i was ace freely so yeah the kiss is definitely a big influence early on that's that's awesome man and i, I noticed uh in in the cart you guys had you know with obituary obviously everyone knows you guys had a, a few of those cartoons made up the last several years and in the the promotional cartoon for the tour with the bat, uh, there's there's like the little kiss cameo in there too, man. That's you know that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Those things. Uh, the guy that does those balas, he's he's done a great job with those. Yeah, I mean not not to jump ahead, but since I brought it up, how much of those cartoons are are you guys like sitting around and writing down ideas as a band, and how much of it is the uh, cartoonists' idea? It's a lot. I mean, I would say fifty fifty, probably. You know. Um, we kind of give him a kind of give him a storyboard how he kind of wanted to go, and he comes back with us with a lot of good ideas too. So a lot of it is his input too, and a lot of it's ours. So I think fifty fifty is probably a good split on that. Yeah, and, and you know, like I said, we're still we're still trying to talk about uh, maybe some of your like like formative years, uh, and. Uh, like a lot of bass players, did you end up playing bass because there was early already a bunch of guys playing guitars? Um, yeah, that's pretty much how it happened. I mean, I I um I started kind of graduating towards liking a lot of the bass when I got older, like you know mid teens, and um I bought a bass and kind of plunked around on it some, but um was never in a band, but uh, I went to uh, Bill Andrews was my best friend at the time. He's the drummer, he's, you know, in Massacre. And uh, I went to every Massacre practice, obviously, and I just knew all the songs by watching the notes they played. And uh, one day um, they kicked out the bass player, and uh, Bill said, hey, bring your bass over and see if you can do this. And I did, and I brought it over, and I played it note for note because visually I already knew what it was, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um... That was kind of the, the seed sprouted then, you know, from then on. And and that was uh, uh, in in massacre you mentioned. Now, uh, I, I'm sure you've gotten all sorts of questions over the years, and there's a very well uh, documented history about massacre, death, the lineup changes, that sort of thing. Um, and we're not going to try to drag you through the coals with all that right now. Um, people can people can 
Google that. But um, were you, so you were in Massacre before you were in Death? Yes. Um, Massacre kind of started around 84 in, like, Bill Andrews' bedroom, basically. And uh, him and Alan West and a couple other dudes were kind of just doing covers. And then, uh, you know, they got to where they got a couple more people in the band. They got a lot more serious, and they started writing a couple originals. And then um, Bill heard that Cam, Cam Lee, was in town. He was, you know, he played in death, played drums, and was on vocals. And we really liked death, Mantis. So he asked Cam if he wanted to sing for Massacre, and he's like, sure. So then rules. Not too long after that, Cam's like, well, Rick's not doing anything. Let's see if Rick wants to join Massacre. So, drove out to Orlando and recruited Rick, you know, so then I wasn't even in the band yet, but I was with them doing everything. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Rick came in the band and it really, a lot of the songs became original songs and they wrote the bulk of the songs that are on From Beyond, actually all the songs on From Beyond, and all of them except one on the EP we did in Human Condition were written in 86 by Bill and Rick and Cam, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I joined the band in um, almost like, I think around Christmas time actually of 86. Um, I think I was in a band maybe six months and then we all joined Death. Me, Bill, okay. and Rick. Um, that came about by we were supposed to play a show with Megadeth Massacre opening for Megadeth and we got bumped off the bill because the management from Megadeth wanted another one of their bands to play I think they were called the Necros or Necros or something and um, we were at the show anyhow but Rick bumped into a dude that knew Chuck and said hey I, I ran into Chuck the other day he moved back to Orlando it's just him, you know, Chris Ryford didn't move out with him, so he's kind of like by himself. So Rick got the idea, you know, he went out and he talked to Chuck and one thing led to another and we kind of all got together and jammed and it clicked. And the reason Rick went and asked Chuck was because Massacre, you know, he was kind of upset. We got bumped off the bill and we sent, the, we sent our demo tapes out to everyone and no one gave a crap. <laughs> so he, you know, we're kind of getting disgruntled or whatever, and, and so that opportunity came up. Uh, Chuck needed a band. He'd never had a full band. It was always him and a drummer or him and another guitar player. There was never even a bass player. So everything worked, lined, lined up perfectly, and, you know, we, we, we started jamming, and not too long after that, maybe about a month after that, our first show was in Milwaukee Metal Fest in 1987 and so that was a and long that was, uh, story there <laughs> so was Massacre the first band you were ever in yes the first band I was in um, technically I mean I jammed with another dude um, I don't even think we had a name for the band but it wasn't even really anything serious yeah. but then right around that time is when um, uh, Bill called me up and said hey we're going to jam today without Mike, you want to come over? And I said, sure. So, and and I guess from what you just said, you that would make you the first official bass player in Death. As far as I know, yes. They, I don't think they ever had a bass player at all. 
I saw them live early on, when I, you know, way early on. It was They were always a three-piece. I know there was a picture of four people, and I asked Chuck, I said, who's that? He's like, oh, that was a guy that was going to play bass for us, but it didn't work out. And as far as a touring band, we were the first. When me, Bill, and uh, Rick joined Death, he had a lineup that could tour, you know. And first of all, he had a solid lineup the first time ever. And then the first time ever, he had a band that could actually go on tour. And that's what we did shortly after the Milwaukee Metal Fest. In early, early January of 88, we went on a tour. It's called the, the, the Scream Bloody Tour <laughs> for Scream Gore. While we're in this time period, you being right there in the middle of it all, and uh, and seeing it come out, the impact of the album Scream Bloody Gore. I mean, you had seen Death and you had seen Mantis and the kind of build up to all of this. Could you describe the impact of when Scream Bloody Gore came out? Did people realize that this was a monumental kind of thing, or was it uh, was it something that wouldn't be appreciated fully till later on? Um, I think initially the diehard underground people immediately picked up on it and enjoyed it. It took a little bit for it to get going. Um, not too long, though, because by the time we started touring, about four or five months after it was released, people knew knew about it, and the shows were packed. We played like 20 shows up the East Coast, and it was, it was packed. Um, I mean, I knew... I've always... Like, I bought the Mantis demo tape from Chuck personally at a Nasty Savage concert here in, I believe, 84. 1984. And uh, that's when I first met Chuck. And so, I mean, I've always loved Mantis, and then when it turned into Death, it was even more brutal to me. So I I knew what Death was. But um, I think it took some people by surprise because it was was pretty raw and pretty brutal. (laughs) You know, to be on combat at the time. I know Chuck fought for that because... They tried to, they wanted to release, they wanted to sign Death as a, um, Combat had this thing called Boot Camp, which they basically, it was a, if you had a demo, they would press it up for you and release it on vinyl. And Chuck's like, hell no, I'm not doing that. I want my band <laughs> signed. I want my band yeah. signed to the label. That's why if you look at a, a vinyl copy or even the CD today, <laughs> Sorry. Um, inside it says, uh, "Death is Don K's folly." I, I I don't know the story, but I remember reading that. Yeah. Yeah, because Don K signed the band, and um, and uh, I forget who put that in there. Um, one of the la- the main label guy put that in there is like this is a joke. This band is a joke, and they suck. So this is Don wow. K's joke. Yeah. Oof. So obviously that totally backfired on the dude. So. <laughs> <laughs> I always figured it, it was a like an inner band joke. I didn't think it was a joke on the band. Wow. Yeah, it was a joke on the band, and um, hmm. obviously Chuck would never approve of that. So that got slipped in there at the last moment when they pressed it and printed it up. Petty bastards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, you know that. I, I knew that that album was amazing and everything, but it, it was amazing to me is when we went on that tour, Scream Buddy Gore tour, 
I mean, there weren't a lot of death metal bands touring at that time, and successful. I mean, the shows were packed. We were selling a lot of merch, and this is 1980, early. This is like January 88, you know? And um, we had played some shows in 87, just a handful leading up to that tour. But, you know, we kind of paved the way, I think, for a lot of up-and-coming bands. You know, bands started taking off. Combat started signing heavier stuff, and... and um, you know, it, it's cool to know that you, I, I call my era of being in death like the blue collar version of death. <laughs> like we, I love we, it. we went out there and we uh, rode in vans and RVs and we, you know, we did everything ourselves. Like I drove the RV, I sold the merch, I took care of the shows, blah, blah. And, <clears throat> you know, I think it kind of paved the way for the later version of death and stuff. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, I was young, and it was just exciting to be playing heavy-ass music going around the country and people liking it, so. Yeah, and, you know, you mentioned driving the RV, you just and, and you're somebody who has toured consistently throughout your career up until um, uh, today, very recently. Obviously, things have changed dramatically in the world, but in the 80s, and especially for maybe some of our younger listeners, um, we always ask people to point out some of the differences it, just in touring, I mean, back then, I'm sure you had, like, the Rand McNally maps, the big maps, and all that sort of stuff to, to get around with. Man, you didn't have GPS, you know? No, there was no GPS or no smartphones to track anything, to call anybody. You, you, if you wanted to call someone, you had to find a payphone. Um, <laughs> you could get a fax sent to you if you went to, like, a, a FedEx place. Um, but, you know, that was it. And it was, it was you know... At the time, we didn't realize it was rough in it, but it was, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, you, you just, like, the first tour, we had a small van. We got, It was like a one of these custom vans. It had, like, captain's chairs in it and a, a table in the middle. So we took all that out. We took the table out and, and stuff, and we stuffed, you know, three half stacks, three guitars, a drum set, our luggage, five people, because we had a sound man, and merchandise into this tiny van, and did 20 shows, you know. There was no passenger vans where you could take half the seats out and make some bunk beds and all that stuff. <laughs> we just stuffed everything in that van and took off on tour, you know. And um, it was fun, though, you know. I mean, we were just, we, had, we were totally greenhorns, didn't know what we were doing, but we just, we had to learn as we went, you know. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. Um, anyway, you know, for for me and, and maybe some of our listeners to think that at one point you, Chuck, guys like you were just you know young guys in a van, um, green, you know, learn learning everything as you go along. Everyone's got to learn somewhere, you know. Yeah, and a lot of the clubs we would go to well, on that first tour. I mean, it was still almost mid eighties, eighty seven, eighty eight. So there's still that rock and roll mentality with some of these clubs and some of the house sound men and all that, you know, and we just had to kind of learn as we went with some people that were <laughs> sometimes not so, I wouldn't say not so friendly, but, you know, they were like, yeah, you're going to, you have to learn your own way, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, hey, you know, we didn't even know what we were doing half the time. We just put our stuff on stage and played. So that first tour, maybe even the second tour, we didn't even have tuners. Chuck would hit a note, or Rick would hit a note, and we would all tune up. Like, we might be in D one day, one show we might be in C. <laughs> you 
Yeah. <laughs> wow. But uh, that's a, we wised that, up that's, a couple tours later and got got a couple tuners and got a little more professional. But <laughs> yeah. Uh, would you would you say that the local venues, like the venue owners, the staff, the promoters, would you say that it's that um, uh, death metal and extreme metal has gotten a little more respect over the years? Like like were you guys treated kind of um, like like the freaks back then, like the oddballs or whatever? Yeah, I mean the fans knew what, what they were coming to see, but you know, like I said, the house sound dudes that are stuck in the early seventies or whatever. <laughs> when we set up and started playing and Chuck starts singing and we're playing real fast or like what you know what the <clears> fuck <throat> is this shit but our booking agent knew this was a type of music that was starting to make it make itself known and um, you know luckily these clubs gave us a chance to play you know and we did and future bands saw us play when they were 15 so and that just started the next level you know the next generation so um uh, i mean you now you are um best known now as a, a member of obituary which you've been in for several years and several albums um but you know you just talked about alan west uh being in massacre right back in the day yeah uh so obviously your your relationship with the obituary guys goes back much further than you being in the band right oh yeah um i've known this guy probably since 85 84 um you know i would bump into him because it is in my same town here we'd be at the shows together see him around town i knew i knew all about him and everything um would i and then i would go see them play as executioner and then even when they were obituary and i, I went to school with alan you know grade school i've known alan forever so it just seemed like a natural fit Oh, yeah. I mean, Six Feet Under isn't so different than Obituary. I mean, Alan West wrote the first two Obituary albums. I mean, the first two Six Feet Under albums. Mm -hmm. So it's very similar style, and uh, it was just something comfortable for me. Plus, I've heard their music forever, and they're super cool guys. I mean, you could not ask to be in a better band with people like them. It's a total family environment. Um, Every one's voice and opinion counts everyone does everything together on tour we're all self-managed so we all do our own parts on tour and it's it's amazing that's awesome and it's it sounds like it must be really cool to be in a um a a touring band uh like that full-time with people you've known so long and who you can trust you know absolutely we we're brothers we we all are on the same page we all know exactly what we want to do and we all respect each other and uh it works yeah definitely on on that note of um i don't want to ask you to call out anybody uh but um to to on a positive note i guess i should say of all the different musicians you've worked with in death massacre other projects over the years six feet under who are you still very like friendly with and and you still uh talk to uh fairly frequently um let's see i would say I pretty much talk to everyone except a couple of massacre dudes and a and a six foot under guy. <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly, um, fair enough. Okay. The massacre guys, uh, oh god, that's I mean that's a can of worms. That's it's a it's more than a can of worms. It's like a fifty five gallon drum full of worms. But <laughs> the six foot under thing, I mean, I really haven't bumped into him since I left and. I have no animosity at this point, you know what I mean? 
teach his own, you know, and uh, whatever. But the opportunity hasn't come up, you know. I talked to Bill Andrews, a drummer from Death Massacre. I email him here and there. And um, James Murphy, talked to him, still good friends with him. Um, let's see, Steve Swanson, we talked here and there. Greg Gall, he's my brother-in-law. He was a drummer in Six Under. Talked to him all the time. The Niles that was another band that I had a couple albums with. I talked to Sam, the main guy, all the time. Yeah. Yeah, um, you mentioned James Murphy. And one of my questions, kind of getting back to the old school stuff, is uh, is it true that you knew James Murphy and kind of brought him into the death fold originally? Yes. Um, I met him maybe a year before he joined death, um, maybe a year and a half before. I was uh, at a little club here called um, Sunday Sunset in Tampa. All the bands played there. Nasty Savage, Death, Executioner, Amon, everyone played there. I met James there and um, we got to be friends. And at that time, I think he had just <clears throat> just got finished. He did a tour with uh, Agent Steel. He did like a European tour with them. And uh, he didn't play on any albums. Then um, he used to write for a little fanzine and he interviewed me, came to my house. And then I kept in touch with him, and I knew he was a shredder. He had joined Hallow's Eve, and it was with them for two or three months, I think, up in somewhere up in the Atlanta area. And uh, we needed a guitar player. Rick was out of the band, and we started writing Spiritual Healing. I think we may have had one or two songs written. So we were like, you know, we need another guitar player. What are we going to do? Do we know anyone? So I suggested, I said, well, I know this dude, James. He played with Agent Steel. He's with Hallow's Eve right now. He's a shredder, cool dude. Uh, I have his phone number. Um, Chuck's like, well, if you got that number on you, I'll call him right now. I said, yeah. You know, call him. Tell him, obviously, he's going to know who you are. Blah, blah, blah. So Chuck called him, told him that I gave him the number. And we were, all, we were actually at Chuck's house all, all there. So um, he's like, okay, well, I think I need about a week. He was being kind of secretive, I guess, because maybe some of the Hallow's Eve dudes were listening in. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, about a week later, he um, showed up and just kind of, we showed him a song or two, and I think he may have already known some parts and plugged right in, and we just started writing Spiritual Healing. And was, um, <clears throat> I mean, I... You know, just my from my objective opinion, when when it comes to death, I always kind of group the first three albums together in a way. Uh, you, I mean, you called it the blue collar years, you know, and I think there's a, a similar vibe. Was there a spirit of of trying to progress, or did it just, or would you say it happened more naturally? It was, I think it was kind of a natural thing. I mean, we uh, we always listened to a lot of progressive stuff when we were touring, even for the Scream Buddy Gore tour and the couple leprosy tours and stuff, and we, we would listen to Watchtower. We were big into a lot of the French metal at the time, which is slightly progressive, like Satan Jokers and Sword Age and stuff. But I think it was kind of a natural thing where like, you can see where leprosy is brutal, but there's a little element of some melody coming into it in certain parts. And then um, Spiritual's even more of a graduation where 
more melody, more scales, kind of different things. You know, James's leads. I, I'd never heard leads like that on a death metal album, so it blew me away. But but it wasn't like we didn't sit down and say, okay, we're gonna try to be more technical. It just kind of went that way. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, it seems like it was in the nature of death to, to always keep progressing, so maybe it wasn't such a conscious uh, thing. No, it's just, it, it, may, it may have become more conscious for Chuck later, because pretty much after, after Spiritual Healing, he wrote all the music on all the albums. So I think maybe he consciously, towards the end, tried to be a little more different. But definitely early on, it wasn't that way at all. It was just like... A natural thing you know so um another thing that we talk about with uh some of the seminal death albums um like a bit a bit of a debate that goes on in the death metal scene uh and and is obviously a lot more uh complicated and a gray area than people like to make of it but people always say you know oh, uh, scream bloody gore possessed seven churches uh sometimes i bring the band necrophagia into into the the argument I, obviously, I'm not going to ask you to sit here and just say eeny, meeny, miny, mo and pick one, but I would like to get your perspective on the beginnings of death metal and, and maybe um, how, how if you would agree that it's way more complicated than just that kind of, you know, either-or debate. Um, it's a little more complicated, but I mean, in, in my opinion, like, I mean, I heard of Mantis, like, I think it was beginning of 84 um i'd heard possessed because i think they were on a compilation from metal blade metal massacre 4 or something and i heard some other heavy bands but i mean i'm not you know i know there was a big debate on facebook a while back you know did possessed start death metal or did death <laughs> i mean i mean you're, you're talking months apart kind of thing you know it's like the, when did the mantis demo come out when did the possessed demo come out i mean i know possessed had seven churches out a couple years earlier than death but you know even like the first creator album i mean that's more than thrash it's like thrash death that came out what in 85 or 6 you know what i mean it's like but uh i don't know just i might be a homer but in my book i'm just gonna go ahead and say that to me death metal is death you know they kind of started it yeah yeah, I'm sure I'll get blasted for that, but <laughs> but that's just that's because I'm I'm close to it. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, I, I don't think, think that the beginnings of it to to me were like Hellhammer, the Hellhammer demos in like '82 and '83, um, Bathory. I mean, that's to me is the, the early kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, what did you think when you were um, younger? And you started encountering this culture of trading tapes through the mail and, and all that sort of thing. Um, were were you like head on into that, or did you just have friends who did that? Or um, I didn't like. I wasn't like a sicko about it, but I did it a few times here and there. If there was a demo I read about that I thought was amazing, and I knew someone had it, you know, um, could trade that way because they would list it in fanzines. You know, I have these demos send five dollars if you want a copy and or you know if you have a demo i want we'll trade that's how it was i, I liked it it was cool because that was pre-computer pre-youtube pre-spotify 
that's how you heard about stuff, you know? If you went, I bought a lot of records back in the day just by the way the album cover looked <laughs> because I had no idea what it sounded like, you know? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But tape trading was awesome. That was, you know, early days. That's, that's how you got to hear a lot of stuff. By the time you got a copy of that demo, it might have been like the hundredth generation, so it wasn't the huh. best sounding thing. <laughs> But you could hear it and understand it. So. Yeah, we uh, we were just talking about the band Zizma. Um, for, uh, I think they were from Finland. The Swarming of the Maggots demo way back in the day. And I got like some 500th generation. It, it just sounded like like somebody blowing, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a funnel or something like that. But Yeah, like that first Mantis demo. When I bought it from Chuck and came home and listened to it, I was like, oh, my God. But it was just so raw and heavy, I could feel it and I could understand the heaviness or rawness of it. It was just, so a cassette was put into a boom box and someone hit record. But that's that was the underground back then. That's how you got to know about stuff. Yeah, and, and that that's probably why, um, may, I don't know, maybe some of our listeners don't, don't really understand. Death had a lot of tapes, live tapes, rehearsal tapes, demo tapes, um, prior to Scream Bloody Gore, and that that's why, right? Because that was the main means of promoting your music back then. Well, that's Chuck definitely did that. He, he wrote a lot of people, and uh, people would write him, and he'd send his tapes out everywhere. Um, he would send, he would make flyers to give to people across the world to hang up in record stores. Yeah, he, they would record, you know, there was various versions, Rick was out, Rick was in, Cam was out, Cam was in, but they had various live rehearsals and some live tapes, and they made like three or four demos as death, and yeah, you know, that's, there's a lot of that out there. Now, in, in preparation for this interview, I did watch the documentary, um, was it Death, death to All that, that you, you participated in? It's called Death by Metal, I think. Is the uh, Death by Metal? I'm sorry. Yeah, I apologize. That's no, right. The tour. The, they did a tour called Death to All. Yeah, and I would recommend that any of our listeners who are engaged in the story check out that documentary. Um, it, it tells tells the story, uh, uh, you know, in things that that maybe we don't have time to get into and, and that sort of thing right now. Um, but uh, rather than ask you, you know, just, just a question I'm sure you've heard a bunch of times in your life. What was it like to work with Chuck? What was Chuck like? Uh, you know, people can, can hear about that in, in the movie a great deal. Something I did want to ask you, though, is what do you take from uh, working with Chuck and, and being around Chuck? Like, what's what's something that you would say you learned from uh, that, that person? Um, well, the main thing is he, he um, his number one priority was his was the band um a lot of times if he went off on someone about his band it's because he was just being protective about his band i mean he you know he, he burned a lot of bridges early on and um a lot of times it's because he thought someone dissed his band and uh just his work ethic you know i took a lot from that and and uh, you know i respected it and um just his writing style, you know, blew me away. How, I mean, so much of the scene is because of him, you know? Yeah, and, um, yeah. He was a funny guy, too. I mean, I was like the band clown, you know? I would keep him entertained. I'd make him laugh till he was about to puke. <laughs> and, um, 
He's just a good guy. You know, I mean, obviously, like I said, there was some issues, obviously, here and there. But I got along with him fine. It's just the way it ended towards the end. You know, he just had something in his mind that he wanted to do, and he didn't know how to deal with it. And unfortunately, Bill and myself got caught up in it, and we did what we thought was right at the time. Um, so that's that's that. You know, I mean. Mm -hmm. But yeah. if I was to say one thing I took from him, I, I, you know, um, maybe just his passion, probably for his for the band, his passion in, in metal, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, did, did after uh, you parted ways with Death, did you ever have an opportunity to reconnect with Chuck before his passing? Not really. Um, I think around '87. No, 97 or so, I got a note from someone, and it's a band that opened for us, and he's like, my sister is dating Chuck, and he gave me a phone number and said, Chuck would like for you to call. I was like, hmm, I don't know, this sounds kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, it's a strange So setup. about five months later, I, I, I called the number, and it was, it was disconnected, so I don't know. But no, I, I never got a chance to really actually talk to him after all that, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. Sucks. I wish I could have, um, because you know we get along great. And like when we were in the band back in '89 and '90, I mean it wasn't like I, I never had the thought that I'm in a band with Chuck Schuldiner. Holy shit! It wasn't that at all. It's like I'm in a cool band that people like. That's you know yeah. that's all it was at the time. You know, it wasn't obviously till years later that the legacy you know, was, you know, unfolded and became what it is, you know, so it was like we were just dudes in a band, you know. Yeah, uh, absolutely, you know, um, you know, with with time that, that legend builds and builds, and that documentary, I thought, made a really good case for humanizing uh, Chuck, um, and, and, you know, he, he was a normal guy like, like anyone else, you know. He, he had, yeah, he was a normal dude, he was a human, he had faults. He had great parts about him, and he had bad parts about him, just like every human does. You know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's, you know, tragic and sad what happened. It'd be interesting to, if he continued to make music, what it would be, you know? Yeah, uh, of course, man. Um, and, you know, rest in peace to him, obviously, uh, and his legacy. And, and that being said, um, as we move on, you and the guys in Massacre, uh, you and Rick and Bill Andrews um, team up with uh, Cam Lee again for Massacre, and you released the From Beyond album, um, which you say that, that those songs were written as early as 86? Yeah, the, the, all, that whole album was written in 86 already. Those were wow. two demos that were put out and a couple songs that were never on a demo. Those were all written in 86. Wow. Um, and, and what... I mean, because... You know, I, I'm a fan of Death and of Massacre, uh, but to me, Massacre, I think Massacre kind of predates maybe a lot of the more um, uh, brut like brutal style of death metal in, in a certain way, uh, in terms of uh, may maybe the vocals and some of the riffing. It's a little chunkier. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah, totally. There's definitely a thrashy element to a lot of the Massacre stuff. I mean, our biggest heroes at the time, obviously, were, were probably Slayer, you know, Celtic Frost, that kind of stuff. 
So totally. That yeah, you know, when um we toured Europe without Chuck for spiritual healing, and right at the end, um, we caught wind that Rick and Cam were doing massacre again, which pretty much pissed Bill off royally, obviously because it was his band, and you know, why are these guys doing massacre? So me and Bill knew that our tenure in death was history after the tour because, you know, just the way it played out. So I called Rick up. I was like, hey, I called him up from Denmark, Copenhagen. I was like, hey, um, I heard that you guys, Eric's interested in signing you dudes. Uh, here's a proposition. I told him what went down with death. I said, how about me and Bill join you guys? We do all the massacre stuff that was on the demos just to get a record out there, you know, record that, get a record out there, and we'll start writing some new stuff. So they were totally down for it, totally down. So, I mean, immediately when we came home, we came home at, on Christmas Eve, literally like a week later, we're already starting to rehearse the old songs, and we're signed to Earache, put that record out, and it blew up, it just took off. So we did, we did two tours for that record, and, um, it was huge, and we did the EP in Human Condition. There's one new song on there, the song in Human Condition. Um, I wrote that song, and it, you know, was killer. It was like a four-song EP. People loved it. We did a tour for that, and then you know, the bottom fell out with those dudes. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like when you work with those guys. In my opinion, you, you got a short shelf life for whatever reason. So, but at least we put those two records out and we did three tours and from beyond, in my opinion, it's a great record. And, um, Agreed. You know, unfortunately we didn't do more, but. Well, uh, you, you did, I mean, you did do back from beyond, uh, what, what was that? 2011? 2015 or 14, the record came out. Okay. I mean, it would have been cool to do more with that first, with that lineup from that's on from me on mm -hmm. but uh and I think in 2011 Rick posted a video on Facebook of massacre in Europe like in 1990 and I just said ah that sucks I wish we could have done more so then we started talking and before you know it he's like hey I got a drummer here why don't you come to Orlando and let's just jam on those old songs and see how it sounds and it sounded great. And we found a singer, uh, Ed Webb. He, he did some stuff with Diabolic, and he's in Generic Christ, and, you know, he, he's done a lot of shit around Tampa. And so we did the 70,000 Tons of Metal Cruise and um, got signed on that cruise because Central Media dudes saw us playing. They came up to us like, holy shit, this, this sounds incredible. We're like, oh, cool, thanks. He's like, we want to sign you guys. So we're like, holy shit, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, put we wrote that record. It's a great record, in my opinion. It sounds killer. It's great production. It's totally massacre. It sticks with the old school thrash death stuff. And then again, the bottom fell out on the DTA tour. Uh, you know, just Rick and the drummer just started getting super paranoid and and um, I don't know if it's because Rick hasn't done, had done a lot 
Rick didn't do much for 19 years, you know, since since he left mm. death, basically, on leprosy. So, yeah, it yeah. just didn't work out, you know. Um, the band had to build itself back up. You know, we it wasn't the band was totally dead for 20 years. We hooked up on a European tour for 10 days, and we did the DTA tour, and we had another tour set up with DTA a few months later. Things were looking up, but it just fell apart. Yeah, um, you know, as as happens sometimes. And um, you mentioned uh, Ed Webb, and he's also in the band uh, Hideous um, with you, uh, Greg Greg Gall uh, uh, from Six Feet Under, um, and Matt Bishop of Lividity, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Greg's been replaced. He kind of stepped down from music. Yeah, I mean, you know, he just he uh, his heart wasn't in it anymore. He just he had a son. He's got a son, so he kind of wanted to spend more time family wise. And um, the hideous thing is weird because it's kind of on cruise life support at the moment. <laughs> because well, because I I'm so busy. Um, Matt lives in Wisconsin. He's pretty busy. So it's like, we really want, we got songs written. We really want to get together and do this, but it's just like, it hasn't come together yet. Yeah. So hopefully, the songs are there. We just got to get together, rehearse them, and record them. So hopefully that happens at some point. Yeah, because you guys did have a um, promo that you released a few years ago that's out there on YouTube. Yeah, we, we did that, and Greg's playing drums on that, so... You know, he was with us. We played a, a couple shows with Greg, so he was there at the beginning. He just stepped away. But um, we got a guy right now, James Whitehurst. Um, but I don't know. It'd be, I mean, it's, there's just only a certain amount of time you have in each day. Yeah, yeah, it's it's true. And I mean, obviously, you're very busy with obituary. Uh, you know, the last several years. Yeah. So in home life, you know, home life takes a lot. Um, so sometimes you just don't have enough time to do anything. Yeah, yeah, it's it's tough in, in uh, underground metal, man, especially. Um, and 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 we, you know, we talked about massacre, uh, the Inhuman Condition EP, um, and then uh, you know, eventually you you part ways with massacre, so to speak. In 1995, you joined Six Feet Under, correct? Yes. Um, funny little story to that whole thing is sometime around 93, I believe, Alan West called me up and he's like, hey, I, I want you to be on this project I got going. I want you and Bill Andrews to play on it. I was like, all right, that's awesome. I said, what, are you, are you still in obituary? He's like, yeah. I said, and those dudes are cool with it? Are you doing all this? He's like, yeah. I was like, yeah, okay, cool. I'm, I'm down. So he... We hooked up, he gave me a, a, a three-song demo, I believe, three or four-song demo, and uh, it was cool. It sounded heavy, like obituary kind of stuff, a little darker, but I never heard from him for like two years. And um, one day, Greg calls me up, he's like, hey, Greg Gall called me up. I've been jamming with Alan on this project he's got. This is like late 94, middle, you know, last maybe October 94 or something. Um, why don't you come over and put some bass on and see how it sounds? So I came over. And sure enough, the first song they started playing is the first song on that demo that Alan gave me. 
I'm like, dude, well, why, why didn't you call me? You know, why didn't, why did it take two years for me to even hear this going on right now? But whatever, that was cool, you know. So we started jamming, and Alan had all the songs already written. So we kind of just, you know, we recorded that album. I think it's a great album, Haunted. Um, you know, people were thinking. Oh, you know, you got a guy from Cannibal Corpse, you got a guy from Death in there, um, a guy from Obituary, Massacre, X-Massacre, blah, blah. It's going to be like some kind of insanely brutal shit. Well, our intentions were not to be super fast. It was to be kind of groovy and dark and heavy, you know. And I think that's that's what the first two albums are, you know. Yeah, um... And w- was that your first uh, your first time meeting Chris Barnes? Uh, was when you joined them? And was yeah, sorry, I-, I met him earlier. I think around '91, we we did a festival as a massacre. We did it uh, on the From Beyond tour. Uh, we played. It was '91 or '92. We played. It was called I think uh, the Hangman's Ball or something. It was at the Ritz Theater in in New York City. It's a bunch of bands on there. I think like Nuclear Assault, Cannibal Corpse, Massacre, maybe Suffocation. But I met him then. Just briefly talked, said, hey, what's up, this and that. And I saw him in passing a couple other times. But when I, you know, first really met him and got to know him was at the beginning there of Six Feet Under. Yeah, and um, is it is it fair to say that during your time with Six Feet Under... Um, especially towards the late '90s, uh, you played maybe some of the the, the biggest uh, like high-profile gigs uh, you had played up till that point. Um, yes. I mean, I played a few. We never played any festivals of death. Um, we played a few in Massacre, but but I think in Six Feet, you know, Six Feet Under at one point we were pretty huge. Um, yeah, you know we stuck we stuck to the formula. Even when Steve Swanson came in the band, when we would tour Europe, I mean we would headline every time, and there'd be a thousand people, fifteen hundred people at every show. We play all the big festivals, but it just got, I uh, you know, it just kind of got a little stagnant, and I think it the tours came less and less, and whatever reasons, you know, so. I just kind of felt, you know, me and Greg left the band in 2011 at the same time. But yeah, yeah it was when we played some huge shows. The Vakken Festival was full force. There's some pretty big shows and pretty big tours we did. Sure. Yeah, and um, uh, obviously on the, the True Carnage album, uh, infamously Ice-T makes a guest appearance, the rapper and actor. Did you meet him? Were you there for that session? No, actually, um, we had recorded the music, and I think Ice-T had a really super short window because he was filming uh, um, Law and Order. So, yeah, Chuck and... Gangster. Uh, not Chuck, I'm sorry. Chris and Brian Slagle flew up to New York, and um, he came in the studio, and I don't think he had heard the song yet, so he listened to the song... <laughs> He listened to the song for a while, and he said, okay, give me a couple hours, and then he came in, and they said he busted out his part, like, real quick. <laughs> One yeah, take, eh? they, they met him and everything, but, uh, you know, 
we the other dudes, we, me, Steve, and Greg, we stayed in Miami, chilling out, drinking margaritas. But um, <laughs> yeah, but I think the label screwed up on that whole thing because they released a sampler for True Carnage and it had that song on it. It's like, couldn't you put a snippet of the song on there? Because, I mean, I'm not saying that because Ice-T sang on one of our songs, we were gonna sell a million records. But, you know, if you give a little sample, maybe some of his fans might buy our record, you know? But the label, yeah. I think, in my opinion, blew it because they released a sampler with the whole song on it. So, you know, boom, there it goes all over their internet and everything. Yeah. We went, the True Carnage is our kind of tuned down, try to be corn, hoppy, kind of jumpy metal. That's what I call it. <laughs> then we, uh, we tuned back up. <clears throat> I like Bring Her Blood. I think that's a good album. What What about Graveyard Classics? Well, here's how that whole thing took off. We did an EP in between Haunted and Warpath. It's, it's half live, um, and there's a couple studio songs on it. I think it's called Alive and Dead, maybe. Yeah, there's like three studio songs, and one of the songs, studio songs, is um, Grinder by Judas Priest. Okay, well, people loved it. I was like, all right, cool. You know, so we got the idea of like, hey, let's, since that was such a cool thing, let's, what do you think about just doing an album of covers? And um, we're like, all right, let's try it. So the first Graveyard Classics we did, I think, I know that like in Germany alone, it sold like 20,000 copies. So we're like, holy nice. shit. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, because of that, it's like, oh, well, let's, Let's do a second one, but let's shock everyone even further by doing the entire Back in Black album. (laughs) First, it was going to be just another type of Graveyard Classics, you know, a bunch of different songs. But then, last minute, we switched it up, and we're like, all right, let's 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 do this. So, I mean, you know, by this time, you got people that really hate Six Feet Under, or they really like us. So, whatever. (laughs) And um. The, so we played. We would play the song TNT from the first Graveyard Classics at the festivals in Europe, and there's 50,000 people jumping up and down singing TNT with us, which was just amazing, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, pe- yeah. People already know it. Yeah. Let's do another one, and then you know, of course, we're like, oh, okay, let's let's get back on track with Graveyard Classics three, which is a lot of cool songs on there, but it's a horrible mix. There's a lot of there's there's some mistakes that were left on there by you know, producers and engineers that shouldn't have been on there. And right about that time is when Greg and I bailed, so, you know. But that's how the cover songs came to be in 1600, by that first song. Like, we need a song, we need another song for this EP we're doing. Well, hey, let's do Grinder. Okay, so that's how that all started. All right, and um, and I'm, I'm kind of, I was kind of trying to set you up for this uh, next question with that because um, af- after you leave Six Feet Under, uh, you eventually join Obituary, and something I've I've noticed, uh, um, you, know, you know, Obituary, you guys have even acknowledged in a lot of interviews the last few years, is how there's this kind of like um, play between like more traditional hard rock influences uh, with the, with the kind of just like laying down the groove. And and having uh, I guess kind of having fun with your music with obituary is that accurate? Yeah, I totally. I mean, you know, the first three obituary albums are different sounding 
um, not so much sonically as they are musically. Um, you know, it kind of got, a, I don't want to say simplified, but like on World Demise, they kind of, it turned into more, um, you know, driving, kind of rhythmic, you know. And it's all about the riff. That's just kind of what we say, you know. Yeah. We, yeah. we want our fans leaving the show, remembering the songs, knowing the songs. It's like, look, I know we're not the fastest band in the world. We don't try to be, you know. We're not a dying fetus. We're not a suffocation. That's not who we are. That's not what the band ever started out to be way back when. And with Ken Andrews in the band, he is an amazing guitar player, and he's a super cool dude. He is, he, his style has just allowed us to do anything we want. And, um, you know, we try and put some fa a couple, you know, throw a handful of faster songs on each record, but then we, we try and just pull in the influences of like Celtic Frost and Hellhammer. But we also are total rednecks and we grew up on Leonard Skinner. So <laughs> we yeah. try and incorporate all that, you know, throw all that stuff into a blender and you got the last two albums, you know, and, and I mean, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I mean, as a live band, we are viciously tight and, you know, on top of our game. It's just, you know, I'm sure our style of music lends to that, but I mean, we, we just know each other so well when we're playing live. We know what's coming up, we know what we're doing. We have an amazing sound man, so we're loving it. And unfortunately, this COVID shit, Corona, put a fucking thorn in everyone's side <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah but I, I know what you're saying about the influence rock a little bit we just you know we're not going to get faster and heavier as we get older we're going to get you know more rhythmic and more easily digestible so to speak you know it's funny yeah, that you say that though i feel like the self-titled obituary album the 2017 one actually picks it up a bit yeah. in a lot of ways um, yeah it did yeah I, I think for one, Ken, Ken um, wrote a couple songs, and we got more familiar with him. And um, I just think, yeah, I, I know what you're saying, totally. Yeah, but um, I mean, it's a great album. It's all it's all about in that groove, getting people going. Yep, feel the groove and write it as heavy as you can. <laughs> yeah, um, and I mean that that also I think could be said for some of your other work. You know, you go back and look at Six Feet Under. Um, you look at this this obituary stuff. Even in um, in Massacre, what I was kind of alluding to before was there's there's just a little bit more emphasis on on the groove and the um, the I guess like the, like you say the riff uh, more than speed and and extremity. Uh, as a do you as a bass player, do you feel like you you put a lot of emphasis on that? Totally. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's times when you want to play as fast as possible, but then there's you know Massacre we. We tried to put in some cool chops and some killer riffs that's really rememberable and people, you know, you know it. When you hear it, you know what it is. And, uh, you know, that's what I personally have tried to do. And uh, a lot of the bands I've been in were able to accomplish that. Um, like I said, I take nothing away from the hyperspeed bands, you know, the crust bands, uh, real fast bands. I got respect for them all day. It's just not what we want to do, and not what I've ever wanted to do myself personally. Yeah, yeah. And um, speaking of you know all the different styles of bands, you've really seen death metal uh, from its infancy 
to this current period now where there's like a million different offshoots of death metal and black metal and grindcore to the point where there's even a wave of younger bands emulating what you guys were doing in the early 80s, this uh, OSDM movement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I was listening to heavy music before Metallica were even heard of, you know what I'm saying, going way back. So I've seen death metal get born, crawl, walk, and run, you know what I mean? I've seen it all, <laughs> and... It's cool, you know, I think I was born kind of like right at the same time, I mean, right at the perfect time, where I got, you know, I was old enough in the 70s to hear all that killer cool music, and then to see metal kind of sprout and take off, you know, is awesome. And it's cool that the younger generation, you know, all the younger thrash that's trying to come back in, Power Trip and Havoc and all that stuff, and then, you know, to see the, the, the uh, old school death metal but they're new bands, you know, Gate Creeper, this kind of stuff. It's killer to see that come back, you know, because there's a lot of cool music. It's like, I don't understand. It's like, okay, this music was only allowed to be around for two years. Now we have to move on. It's like, no, it's cool music. Why stop it, you know? Yeah, yeah, man. Um, we, and, and on that note, uh, just, you know, your own uh instinct your own your own prediction where would you see death metal going like i guess the, the next uh wave of, of death metal maybe in a few years that we're not thinking of oh I, gosh i don't know um i have no clue because <laughs> i mean <laughs> in my book you can't go any faster unless you, you actually really do have a drum machine back there um mm -hmm. you know you can only your fingers can only go so fast you can only write so many notes per second it's you know i don't know what the next kind of movement's going to be whether it's i don't know man like black metal country i don't know <laughs> well, there is that like that folk influence black metal so that is kind yeah, of a thing. yeah uh panopticon the pagan metal yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean that you know. It's so, so it's already happening. I just said it, and it's already been happening anyhow. <laughs> right. It happens as quick as you can think of it. You know, there's too many people with good ideas right now, I know. so it's hard to yeah, keep up. Of course, especially now that they're all at home, sitting with guitars, jamming stuff out. There's gonna be a lot of albums written during this <clears> time <throat> off. You watch. Yeah. Come, come at the end of the year, or the beginning of 2021. There's gonna be like. 400 records released. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everyone it's start commuting though, again. You're going to need the time to listen. Exactly. When round two hit. How, how exactly did this whole situation affect obituary um, in terms of cancellations? What did what did you guys have coming up that you had to cancel? Oh, man. Well, we, we were right in the middle of a Black Label Society tour. Um, mm. we, had, we had done exactly half the dates. And the way things work, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to dig into how financially our band operates, but most of the money you make is kind of on the back end because you have to buy you have to buy the merch, um, you got to pay for the bus, pay for your crew and everything. And once all that's paid for, then you start making your money. So usually the last 10, 8, 10 to 12 shows of a tour is when you start making your money, you know what I mean? Well, yeah. we did half a tour, so... Right. We didn't owe any money to anyone, but we didn't make a cent. Oh, so that sucked. And, you know, you're counting on that money to live. It's not there. 
So, and then, okay, we're like, well, we got festivals coming up. Nope, all the festivals have canceled. Now, the Bike Label Society, what, what was left over, is been rescheduled for August. Well, now that's in jeopardy, obviously. You know, is that going to even happen? And we have something lined up after that that's huge. Um, it's a four-band tour. I can't even say it right now, but it's a massive, awesome tour we're going to be part of. So that's all in jeopardy. So yeah, it, it you know, we we love playing music, um, but it is a business, and we do good at it. You know, we make a living off of it. Um, fortunately, we can do that. You know, some bands can't, but we can. And this, so this totally just, you know, destroyed us basically. So we're all like scrambling, you know, trying to hopefully the stimulus checks come in from the government, <laughs> you know, all this kind of stuff. So we're just trying to keep afloat until we can get back going, you know? Yeah. And this yeah, man. To, well, it sucks. This has happened to every band that was on tour and all the crew people and bus drivers and, you know, all this just doesn't, isn't going on right now. All the touring bands and, like, you know, sports. Those are the two things that just can't can't happen oh, at man. all. Like, restaurants nope. can make an attempt at delivery and things like that. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Oh, man, I feel so bad for, yep. for touring bands right now. Oh, man, it's just, it, it affected so many different levels, like I said, from the actual theater owners to booking agents to the crew to the bus drivers to everybody. Yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, hopefully this shit clears out in the next month or so. Yeah, we can we can only hope, man. Um, and we hope you guys are able to get back to a, a more productive work schedule uh, ASAP. Um, and speaking of work, if I'm not mistaken, the last thing we heard from Obituary was the "A Dying World" single from 2019 when it, when it came out. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. Was was there any plans for any other new material, like you know, before all this, you know, shutdown and all this sort of stuff? Or? Yeah, we were we were trying to kind of like pencil in like a kind of a time frame where we might be able to get together and kind of throw some riffs around. Trevor's got a lot of, a lot of ideas, so does Ken. Um, but we haven't attempted to get together, you know, just because we don't want to possibly infect anyone. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. everyone, I assume, and hopefully everyone's kind of writing some riffs at home right now so where when we can get back together, we can throw some stuff together. Because I know there's a there's definitely a lot of riffs floating around that's been recorded just for reference that hopefully we can put it all together. So, I mean, it would be nice to have a record out in 2021. Hell yeah. Yeah, like you said, a lot of albums being written, uh, and probably a lot of albums going to come out uh, in the next year or two. From from all, if there's that, if if there's anything good that could come out of this, uh, at least maybe we'll get some good music out of it all. Um, yeah, definitely. Hopefully, you know. And um, you know, speaking of music, like I said in the beginning, uh, Terry, we uh, we want to be respectful of your time. Um, I you know I could pick your brain as as long as you let me, but um. Uh, as we start to wrap up, we, we always ask our guests to uh, take a minute and recommend for us and our listeners uh, one older band, one older release um, that, that you enjoy, and one newer release by any artist, any genre of music. Just an older and a newer um, piece of music to recommend to our listeners, uh, if you don't mind. Okay, um, older. I mean, 
I'm gonna have to. Thin Lizzy's my favorite band of all time. Yes, nice. So I'm gonna rec- yeah, I'm gonna recommend the Johnny the Fox album. Um, to me, that's that's you know I always go back and forth between that and um, Black Rose, uh, but um, I recommend that one. I mean, it's you know it's amazing vocals. The songwriting is incredible. Phil or not the bass player? I mean, he he tells a story in every song, and it, just his vocal pattern is amazing. And then the guitar players, Scott Gorm and uh, Brian Robertson are just um, absolutely amazing. Um, I mean, you know, I recommend, that's what I recommend for the older. You know, if no one's ever heard that, if you're looking for something to to see kind of what, I call it building blocks, you know, people that were 15 that listened to Thin Lizzy, maybe they started playing music and maybe, you know, maybe they started the band in the early 80s and so forth, you know what I mean? So... It's good stuff. Um, newer, I'm going to have to mention Gate Creeper again. Um, I think the album's called Deserted. Um, it's just amazing. Cool, old school, just makes you want to jump in a mosh pit. Death metal. Yeah, they definitely uh, they embody that very nicely. Yeah. Good guys, too. We actually were going to play some shows with them. Um in between festival dates in Europe, like some some club dates, but you know, obviously that's been canceled. So that sucks. Hmm. Yeah, I, I could see I could see Obituary and Gatekeeper being like a real um, a real entertaining live show for the crowd. You know, both both bands kind of you know the mosh pits and all that. Terry, man, we we thank you very much for your time and for sharing uh, your story with us um, tonight. We appreciate it, man. Uh, is there, and we wish you uh, the best of luck, uh, obviously, with you and all your bandmates with this current situation. It's tough on everybody, man. In closing, is there just anything else you wanted to say to your fans and to listeners of our show? Well, uh, just thanks for the support and the bands I was, uh, you know, that I was in, and um, for your continued support. Thank you. Um, you know, come out to the show. I'm, I'm usually hanging out by the merch. I'm, you know, all of us are easily accessible. And uh, I'd like to thank you guys for for uh, giving me the opportunity to run my mouth. Hopefully, somebody thinks it's cool. Um, <laughs> I so. do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We're a hundred percent on board, man. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right, man. Uh, Terry Butler, man. We're gonna keep our eye on obituary and on you for anything you're doing, man. Uh, thank you again so much for your time and for all the work you've done over the years for Extreme Music. Thank you. Have a good night. Cool. All right, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. Later, brother. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Terry Butler uh, of Obituary and uh, everything else we talked about. That was uh, um, a great interview for me. Uh, We thank him for his time. Yeah, it's great getting some insight from the beginnings of this style of music. It's funny because you asked him a couple questions about Chuck and being in death, and he, he was 
dead real about it. It's like, he, he, mm-hmm. to paraphrase, he didn't think much of being in death at the time because the legacy had not formed. You know, he, he was just <laughs> that, like, he just liked being in the band and stuff. So it's cool getting that perspective on it. Well, I think he summed up the point that you're trying to make best when he said that he was in uh, the blue collar uh, era of, yes. of death, right? I like that terminology. Yeah. If you if you listen to the show already, you know you know how I feel about about the whole blue collar thing, man. So yeah, I, I mean I, I I'm speechless. Terry Butler, man, that was a high point for the show, right? Um, Very fun. Now, I don't know if you guys could top uh, anything that's been discussed already, but uh, we do have to do a couple recommendations before we get out of here if we want to pitch this as a complete episode, right? Yes. Yeah, let's okay. do it. You're saying it like it's All a right. chore, wants- Will. We love this. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to go first? Yeah, I'll hit it. Hit. I'll hit this boy, figuratively. Um, so, all right, uh, I wanted to keep in uh, in line with this classic death metal episode that we've got going on, hmm. and I would like to bring to the table and recommend to all y'all uh, the band Misery from Brisbane, Australia, and their record A Necessary Evil, which uh, came out in 1993. Mm-hmm. Hey, strong, strong. So, um, so yeah, I found this band uh, completely by accident. Um, turns out we all should have listened to this a lot sooner, you know, as, as is all this, this amazing classic death metal and more obscure shit comes to light. Uh, this is a really fucking cool band. Uh, a, I'd say, like, this blend of New York and Florida death metal in the early 90s um, with an emphasis on guitar work and, and more... Specifically, uh, these meticulously crafted guitar solos. Um, every note kind of intentional, you know, not not so much of that speed thrash like Slayery kind of solo, but really, really well crafted musical. Um, my first impression of this record when I when I was when I was listening to it was it's it's kind of this like the answer to what happens when you like have a nice. Uh, young lady uh, by the name of Effigy and a uh, hulking man by the name huh. of Tomb of the Mutilated and what happens when they get all like busy and, and stuff like that and, um, I think this band comes <laughs> comes pretty damn close and yeah. you throw in the occasional uh, atmospheric part or this kind of drawn out doom riff and uh, this is truly like a, a forgotten classic um, and man a necessary evil it's a necessary listen I'd say whoa Ooh. Yeah. Uh, Let me dust your shoulders off, Justin. Uh, But I do have to disagree with you on one point you made. This was no accident that you found this, my friend. Uh, It was serendipitous that you brought this to the podcast. Um, This this is a beautiful, immaculate example of death metal. Uh, Lost on me. I'm not going to front. This is one of those things where, oh, yeah, Adam Rotella taped me that when I was five years old. No. That only goes so far away. Yeah. I'm not going to fake flex on you guys like that. But, um, yeah, I listened to this in its entirety this morning, man. Uh, what amazing... It remind, I, if I had to do any kind of frame of reference thing, especially for that time period, it reminded me mm-hmm. kind of of the older hypocrisy or older sinister material uh, mm-hmm. where, where, some, where those, some of those European bands were not playing with the melodic part of death metal as, as much. And they, were, they were going full... Uh, like suffocation kind of stuff. I'm, I'm yeah. tired of bringing other names into this though. Let's talk about Misery though, man. What an amazing album. It had everything you need. Uh, yeah, it, it was it, 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 it was engaging every step of the way. 
um, they got busy, and it's it's. I'm just so glad that it's no longer forgotten, and that you brought it to our attention, man. Uh, highest caliber recommendation. Yeah, I was super pumped to to bring this to your attention, Will. I know this is like so on your avenue, you know, of of, of listening, and yeah, it's crazy. And and the way that like all these, um, you know, flavors of death metal mix up with this band is they just they just hit it like seamlessly like it just it just comes at you and it keeps your attention like you're saying um, a truly engaging listen like all the way through uh, like a perfectly layered eggplant rollatini just to tie it back into a point we were discussing <laughs> earlier tonight yeah if, I, if that was my if you're telling me like if I hadn't heard that and you're telling me that now I would pass on it because I'm done with eggplant <laughs> rollatini <I'm> just, <laughs> yeah <laughs> say, put it in the Tupperware for tomorrow listen but yeah. you're right but you're right yes yeah So tonight, for my new recommendation, I got the okay. new Rip to Shreds, Luan. Oh boy, Luan, Luan, uh, yeah, Luan could be. I, I don't know. Uh, this came out April seventh, two thousand twenty, on Pulverized Records. Shout out to my buddy Phil from the podcast Phil's Breakfast Metal for bringing this to my attention. Rip to Shreds is the brainchild of a gentleman by the name Andrew Lee. This guy is involved with many, many projects, such as Hokatu Grind Time, Serpent Rider, Skull Smasher. Yeah, so this guy's involved in a whole bunch of projects. You can dive into his stuff all day. Staying busy. So he's based out of San Jose. Andrew Lee has written an excellent death metal album through and through right here. Although it's a one-man project, he has the help of Justin Bean on drums to keep it extra real. You know how it is. Andrew plays guitar, bass, and is on vocal duty. There's a couple guest spots, including Takafumi Matsubara of Mortalized and Gridlink playing lead on a track, as well as good brother Phil Tugas turning the song Opening Salvo on its head with a nasty, nasty power metal solo out of nowhere. Nice. Really nice Very flair nice. to this album. Yeah, this this is another solid recommendation, man. You got you guys are hitting them out the park today for me. Uh I, I, this this album kept me guessing. When I first put it on, I was like, "Oh, this is a pretty sick grindcore band." And then, like you know, a few seconds went by, and I was like, "Oh, that's you know." And then they just kept throwing me for a loop the whole time. It was like this uh, roller coaster for the years kind of thing going on. Very very strange, man. You know, uh, really fresh take on death metal. I, I gotta uh, I gotta concur, man. Good good uh, choice, man. Yeah. So I want to unpack this mix a little bit because I I think this is a ten for ten on the mixing end. I love the way this yeah. album sounds. These guitars yeah. and bass like have this folding and drive quality that get me in a certain way. Like I hear this tone and I feel like the security guard from Naked Gun 33 and a third when Anna Nicole Smith starts <laughs> popping bubble wrap. I'm like, ooh, I'm sweating. <laughs> I'm just drawn to the to a guitar mix and how it sounds and how it works. And like this is a ten. You don't get a lot of tens. 
I love it. <laughs> I, have, I, I haven't seen that movie. I haven't seen that movie in like 20 years, so I, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, dude. dude. That is a solid reference right there. This tone like translates really well between the chunky power chord parts that are more death metal yeah. and the trem parts. I think it's perfectly balanced. So uh, shout out to Greg Wilkinson of Earhammer Studios for pulling this mix out. That dude, Greg, is a solid engineer. He's worked with all kinds of great bands like Necrot, Skull Shitter, Ulther, and even Will's recommendation for later. I'm not going to spoil it. Um, anyway. Stop. Dude, you're already doing your own recommendation, man. Stop trying to spill the beans on mine. Man. This, guy's, <laughs> this guy's trying to take the wind out of my sails right here. I'm sorry, but I love it. It's the full package, good songwriting, great pacing, intriguing riffs, menacing vocals. It's got the creepy parts. It's got the wall of sound parts, little melodic qualities. So check it out. Rip to Shreds, Luan. Yes. Will, you want to take it over, man? I'll shut up. Uh, no, I mean, go. why don't you go ahead, man? You're already talking about who, who recorded it. <laughs> I, listen, I'm here to talk about Warp Chamber, um, which, in all fairness, I'm busting balls, but Tom, you brought to the podcast originally, uh, way, way back on one of the earlier episodes, um, and they're back. They're on Profound Lore Records with Implements of Excruciation, uh, which was released March 27th. And um, what uh, a, a disgusting, uh, sick, uh, raw-sounding piece of death metal. The vocals are very polarizing, and I think a lot of people are going to not like them, and a lot of people are going to love them. I'm on the side of loving them. I think they're great. Um, but just re- like really raw, disgusting, kind of animated vocals, man. I, I, I love it. It gives it a lot of personality to the band, uh, kind of blasting death metal. I, people... Some some of the some of the real cult people out there might think I'm off base with this one, but I I felt a similar kind of vibe to Order from Chaos. Are you guys familiar with them? All right, we're gonna have to talk. We'll talk. We'll talk. Don't worry. It's all, right, all good. Yeah. Talk, we'll talk. All right. Uh, but um, but just kind of like this chaotic, hyper blasting, uh, otherworldly, abysmal vibe. And then it breaks that character a little bit into uh, more of a structured death metal. It's, but the whole time, the vocals are just like this spastic, crazy uh, creature. And it gives it this um, this otherworldly vibe. Kind of a mysterious band if you try to look them up. There's really not much information. Of it. Metallum doesn't even have a file on them so much. Metallum can't even tell you who they are. I mean, that you know, that Mulder and Scully are still out there in the field on that one, you know. <laughs> so... You know, Warp Chamber, you know, so, uh, you know, Profound Lore Records uh, put it out. It's been out since March 27th, so hop on that, because I think the CD and the LP are limited to 500 each, if I read correctly. Uh, Warp Chamber, Implements of Excruciation. Yeah, man. I, I really enjoy this. Uh, I I just, like, I took away vocals from, from this record. I was like, <laughs> the vocals are so fucking cool. Yeah. Um, and you like you know because just because you're not hearing so much of that right now you know it everything you said about giving it character and personality i think is completely spot on 
Um, I also I I lo really love the guitar work too because it's like it's almost, it's understated but like so there's so much groove and strength in, in those riffs you know as it's going uh, very just deliberate uh, deliberate riff choices deliberate note note choices uh, yeah I love when something that that isn't like flashy which is kind of like where I tend to to go uh, something way more simplified like grabs me yeah. and is memorable so I, I felt that with this record for sure. I got the demo tape flex. Got to get the fuck out of here. Just play it. the episode yep uh terry butler uh, we thank him again for his time amazing story uh, a lot of insight into the history of this thing we call death metal goes without saying uh justin the misery uh impeccable nice eggplant rollatini mm. um uh, uh, uh metaphor you know i love it full of it tonight just completely full of it tonight ripped to shreds uh, like a shredded beef taco, you know, you know, uh, it was a great meal we had this evening. Uh, and then we did the time warp again. <laughs> we stepped into the warp chamber and we did the time warp again. Um, you know, which, uh, if anyone knows that, that that's kind of a low key meatloaf reference. So I'm killing them tonight. Yeah, I'm killing, I'm killing, yeah, I'm killing everybody with it tonight. Um, all these refs jump to the left. Yeah. But so step to the right. Listen, we the one thing that we don't have on that website, we do not have the baked clams available yet on our website, heavyholepodcast.com. But we do have those sticker packs. Give me ideas with those clams. <laughs> next, per, next person to order a sticker pack, uh, you might get a, just a clamshell uh, instead. <laughs> save it, because like just like the, the death shirts that were sold... In 1994, uh, you can sell that clamshell in 20 years for $800 on eBay. Oh, boy. Allegedly. There you go. Uh, yeah, so, Will, you were saying sticker packs. People love them. Yeah, they put them on their skateboards like the kids do nowadays. Uh, their, their iPods, you know, the things like yeah. that. <laughs> their, their Beats by Dre. They put a sticker on their, yeah. you know, you their headphones, right? That's what, you know, the kids do. What if they wanted to buy those, though? Is, like, does it cost a lot to get it shipped over? Uh, it really doesn't cost anything. Uh, and listen, because I'm gonna get, I'm gonna let you in uh, on a little secret. Everybody listening right now. What's hot? You type in, type, you you go you go to heavyholepodcast.com. You click the shop. Add one of these beautiful sticker packs. You know, there's about six in there. There's all sizes. Put them on your helmets. They got a little small one for your tamagotchis, and your kids love them right now. Type in the promo code Chunky Riffs and get yourself. Free ship. I'm gonna pay for all the shipment. You know, somebody freedom's not free, and neither is the shipping. I'm paying for it. Chunky Riffs gets you, the customer, free shipping off on the sticker pack, and that's all I gotta say about that, guys. Come, on. you know the deal. 
I cannot wait to get some more cool shit in the merch store. I don't know when we have word on we're official word on that, but it's coming. So keep your eyes peeled. We're starting with stickers. We're gonna start off easy. We're gonna reel them out. You gotta get cool shit. Yeah, I, I appreciate the fishing uh, reel reference there. Thank you very much, Tom. Um, and uh, yeah, chunky riffs. Uh, the promo code for that free shipping for the sticker packs. Uh, and uh, that reminds me, uh, Chunky Riffs, kind of like the, the riffs uh, they use in Obituary, Six Feet Under, Massacre. Shout out to Terry Butler. Uh, thanks again. Heavy Hole Podcast. What's the number, guys? Oh, we're doing the number again. No, uh, it's one. Ha <laughs> ha. <What? laughs> you, <laughs> you failed the test. Yeah.